Fentanyl is becoming a problem across America, and even here in Alabama, lives are being lost every single day. We talked to one father who lost their son last year to a fentanyl overdose, and a doctor who's dealt with the opioid addiction across America for the past several decades, and a former DEA agent who talks about just where these drugs are coming from and how dangerous they are. Stick around for the show. It is so informative, you don't wanna miss it. Welcome into this week's edition of Alabama Unfiltered, your favorite podcast, no matter where you are in the country, not just in Alabama. Thank you for watching. The ladies are with me. Allison Sinclair, Amy Beth Shaver is here. And I want to tell people how they can find us. Are we still over on YouTube or are, well, we, are we banned? That was the thing. It really depends. Okay. So depending on the episode, it's not been banned yet, but we're on the brink of totally losing YouTube. Like one possibly. more strike one more. in 90 days and we are gone forever, so which I'm kind of rooting for it. I, I think need a we'll badge of honor, you know, like right. three strikes and you're out. And so in place, we'll have our logo and then like some kind of really great like shirts that say Alabama a shirt Unfiltered. That said We're not on YouTube yes. any longer. Yeah. Something like that uh -huh. with a big capital. That's, not. But that's still advertising for YouTube. Okay. I we're like, not on we're not big not. social media. Right. Right. Well, that's fair. So where else? We're not we're with Rumble. the CCP anymore. We're not with them. We're on Rumble. We're on all the other places you can get your Spotify, podcast Spotify, iTunes, iTunes. Podbean. It's your favorite place. Yeah, I love, I love and Podbean. and don't forget to go to 1819news.com, download their newsletter and their daily detail. This program is powered by them, and we appreciate everything they do for us. But let's get started today. Today, the big topic is fentanyl, which I would argue is the worst drug epidemic that the mainstream media and people in general are not talking about because untold numbers of people, Americans are dying every year. I mean, it is an absolute crisis. And we seem to, as a people, just kind of pretend like it's not happening. It's very bizarre. And I think that when I think, I think of big city, you know, fentanyl, like right. San Francisco, New York, and it's here. It's in our backyard, literally. And so we have Ray Hornsby that's with us today. He's the father of Price, a high school senior who passed away last year of a fentanyl overdose. And so I think it's time we start having that conversation that, like, I have a senior in high school. I have a sophomore at Auburn University. I mean, this is there. It's in their lives. Right. and. It's bizarre that our, I, I feel like nationally, we're just letting all these drug mules and cartels bring it across the border. And then on a state and local level, it's like, it's nobody wants to talk about it. Right. So, Ray, really are you're with us? Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I really, I, as I was reading, tell me a little bit about Price because he seemed like a super cool kid. Like, it reminds me of, just my kids, just a normal Auburn all, High School, all American, all American wanted to go mm -hmm. in the Space Force. Tell us a little bit about your family and Price's life. Uh, well, I'm married to my wife, Lee Hornsby. We have three children. Price was our oldest. Uh, we have twin girls, and, and they are 16 years old now. Price was uh, kind of an all-American kid. I mean, he wasn't a perfect kid because I don't think any kids are, but he was a he was a fairly decent athlete. He he made pretty good grades. He actually graduated high school early, and uh, he we had just talked to his parents instead of going straight to college. Hey, let's let's serve our country and and let's try to uh, 
you know, figure out what we want to do in life. And we thought by doing that, he'd have a better idea before we spent a lot of money on college. Absolutely. And, uh, and we, you know, just to, just to be upfront and honest, kind of full disclaimer is that my son, but does bear some responsibility in, in, in his death. Uh, but like a lot of kids, I think culturally today, people are, are very confused because you have states that have, you know, legalization of marijuana and it, and it's, you know, this day and age, it's very common for for high schoolers to experiment with that, and and they but they get it in an illegal method from drug dealers. But you have other states where that's legal, and I think when my son he bought what he thought was a Percocet, and it had eleven times the lethal limit of fentanyl in it, and it uh we found him his mother found him dead in his bed. Mm. Um, it's a it's a picture that no parent. I mean, every parent to some degree, probably fears, you know, what would happen if I lose my child or, or, and, and we found him in his bed from that. And it took almost six to eight weeks before we ever really found out how he even passed away. Mm. And, and it was just a, it was a horrible thing. And I hope that this podcast and some of the other things that my family has done will save other people's children from, from not making this tragic mistake. And, uh, and we need as a state and, and on a federal level, you know, the drug dealers who sell these things uh, need to be prosecuted. And there's not laws currently in Alabama to do that because they there should be consequences to their actions. And 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 it's just a very horrible thing. Ray, I appreciate I appreciate your story. And, and I think you're when you're saying that hopefully it will warn other families and, uh, and other kids. My wife and I talk about it a lot. There seems to be untold numbers of stories of of a young person teenager college kid whoever who says hey i'm gonna you know maybe smoke some marijuana and they find out fentanyl's been laced in the marijuana or they they think they're buying something else and fentanyl is in there and um some of them end up passing away some of them are immediately addicted and it just seems that i think you were hitting on something we have this societal attitude which is oh well you know experimenting with drugs kids is great doing kids. drugs is great kids are going to be kids and and we really live in a different time we're not talking about you know the 1960s or the 70s where they're rolling up in the VW bus and smoke rolling out i mean we're talking about i mean these drugs are are the real deal as and um people losing their lives and it seems like instead of amping up the drug war we're kind of conceding the drug war when it's more deadly than it's ever been weird. It's very, very strange. And I think as a parent, I can't imagine what you all went through that morning. And I, I looked it up because um, it was March 26th of 2021. And that was a Friday. So the night before would have been a Thursday night. And, you know, it just is, I'm thinking Thursday night at our house. I mean, we've got dinner, people are coming in and out of practices. And maybe we watch some show on TV and everybody's in bed. What was that night before like? Did you have any inkling that any of this was going on or that um, was priced with friends that maybe you could get some answers from? Or was he just in his room? I mean, like, how many times do your kids come home, go to the room, they're going to study, they're going to do whatever? You don't know. Yeah, he had uh, that. We, he, he, I own a heat and air and plumbing business in, in, the, in the town we live in. And, he had worked with me that whole week. We had talked about he was getting ready to go to the, to the 
to the Space Force, and and uh, that Thursday he actually he took his sister to a, to a Bible study, and he dropped her off, and uh, we didn't find out until that Friday after he passed away that on a Life 360 he went to an unusual location, and we mm-hmm. think that's where he met somebody from on you know from Snapchat, and uh, where drug menu was at, and and uh, and picked up the what he thought was a Percocet and. And I actually, the, the last words I spoke to him, it was kind of during allergy season. He came down when he got back from bringing his sister. He went into his room for a few minutes and he walked out and he said, hey, dad, you want to you want to finish watching the new Justice League movie? See, and, typical and Thursday said, night. Um, and I said, son, I said, I, I, said, I just I kind of felt good all day. I think I'm going to go to bed because we got a busy day. This is probably 830, 845 at night. And that was the last words I spoke to him. His best friend that goes to University of Kentucky called him. About nine twenty, nine twenty-five that night, and Price unusually did not answer his phone. Mm. So we think that he was uh, he he might not have been. Um, I'm not sure if he was dead or just so incapacitated that he couldn't answer his phone. But but that was the last thing I spoke to him. And you know, in going back, you know, I I think culturally too that you know we 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 live in a society that goes, hey, let's take a drug to fix something within ourselves more than we ever have. And and I think people, you know, after COVID and now for some reason, you know, you have generations of people who, you know, have who suffer from anxiety and depression. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if that's why my son did all that. We didn't seem to have any signs of that. But um, but I do think as a as a country and our government, we have we have the ability militarily to 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 stop drugs coming into our country. I mean, we can do that okay. <laughs> and, uh, and we can at least slow it down. Right. And and we, and we I, I think, you know, I think we choose not to do that. And we've been doing it for years. And uh, but it just maybe it just takes the right person's child dying before we get serious about mm-hmm. this. That's mm-hmm. so sad. So what did you know about fentanyl before Price's death? I had no idea. I really I had never I had never. I think maybe I had heard about it, but I just kind of assumed you know, you know how you can look back and just think right. that this is maybe something people who are junkies use. Right. You know, people who are just habitual drug addicts, and and when they can't get whatever substance they're addicted to, they go for something that could potentially be life threatening. And you know, after he after he passed, I mean, the, the another kind of detail to this is that when you know my wife, if we would have known, we wouldn't have called the ambulance and the police as quickly as we did because at that point it was a murder investigation. We couldn't see our son. We didn't see our son for almost three days. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, and then we get, you know, brought down to the police station, which we were completely innocent of anything. But it's just a, it's a picture that you don't want to have to live through. And if any parent can 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 educate your kid. But I think it's even greater than educating our kids is that, you know, I don't understand why a deadly substance is just infiltrating this country and it's just killing hundreds of thousands of people. And and. And we're not doing anything about it. I mean, when COVID was supposedly killing everybody, we were we we're in a panic mode, you know. Mm-hmm. And and we're and same thing is happening, but it's, it's young people, you know. So when you um, first of all, I want to go back to something you said. I've never heard of a drug menu. What on Snapchat? On Snapchat? Yeah, I've not heard of that is either. Is it just like you can find? Well, I don't want to give anybody any ideas, but on you, there are certain people you can follow so, so, and. Yeah, so kids are kids are resourceful, and there's stuff on social media where drug dealers can, you know, it used to be people had to work to try to find drugs or try to find right. some sort of source, and now 
I think through social media and this, this networking ability that you can just reach out to people on so many different levels uh, that that he he was shown a drug menu on Snapchat, which is a picture that gets deleted and taken away. And Snapchat, mm. you know, bears no responsibility in that. And I, I'll never comprehend that the day because they're facilitating a drug deal. Right. So they're shown a menu from this person that they probably don't even know a real name or anything. Right. And then they just message back and say, I'll take to Percocet. And you don't know who it is. You don't know where it's coming from. Did well, you? That, that's not necessarily true. The, okay. the, the, the person he got it from, I think he did know. I mean, we live in a college town where everybody knows. Uh, I think kids know who drug dealers are. And okay. that's this, this kid was using Snapchat as a, as a platform to sell his product. Right. But you don't know who it is. Yes, we know who it is. He was arrested. Oh, he was arrested. Yeah, okay, okay, to. okay. I, I wow. want to get there, but I want to stay. Um, after you found him that morning, how you you made a comment, and in the article, um, said he took one pill that had eleven times the lethal limit of fentanyl. Did you find other pills, or is that from the autopsy, or how did you know? That, actually, that find out. Okay, so that's how you knew what he took. And there was no Percocet. It was all fentanyl. It was all it was all fentanyl, and it has some trace amounts of cocaine in it, oh which they the D, the DEA told us that is that anybody can purchase a pill press from Amazon, and they they'll mix these substances together and they'll make pills that look or replicas of of common prescription drugs. So is it purposeful? I mean, are they trying to kill these kids and people? Or do you think they, I mean, I mean. So you're saying, are, is it, or is it accidental or are they loading it up with so much fentanyl that no matter who took it? Well, would, I mean, would die? I guess I'm thinking like, do these drug dealers, somebody has to press it. Somebody has to make it look like something else. Do these drug dealers, are they just getting these that, you know, come across the border and they actually think they're Percocets or are they actually pressing them and forming them and actively, I mean, you wouldn't think you'd want to kill your customer. I mean, if you're thinking about their purpose is to make money, right? but maybe it's just where we are. I mean, do you know anything about this dealer? Maybe or, it's a random, or, right. every, every yeah. one of every few thousand well, I mean, pills. I, I know that he was just a, a, a run of the mill drug dealer Okay, and he was arrested. And I mean, I can't, I'm not going to say his name because there's mm-hmm. a case pending. Right. Okay. But, but, I, but you know, the same question that you just said, the same question that I asked myself was that why I, why would a drug dealer want to kill his customer? Right. Because that he, but if the answer is not, he doesn't want to kill his customer. The only other answer is, is that maybe somebody else that is selling this stuff to him, maybe they do. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It just, it doesn't make sense. Is you know? fentanyl cheaper? Like I'm trying to figure out why it just burst on the scene out of yeah, nowhere. It's a, it's a, what I've been told is a, it is. It, it was actually a an elephant tranquilizer. Uh, that and it is. It is. Uh, well, what do you call something that's that can be made that's not doesn't come from a plant like opiates and heroin come from the opiates. Okay, it's synthetic. Yeah, that it's a synthetic drug that is extremely powerful. I think people who have, you know, bad cases of cancer and stuff, maybe doctors will. I mean, in hospitals will administer this right. for pain. But it's under strict observation yes, and yes, yes. I mean the sick. size of a grain of salt to kill an adult. Yeah. Oh my goodness. 
So the investigation starts and what, where are y'all now? I mean, he, is he out, I guess? And yes, he bonded, he bonded out of jail immediately. Okay. And, um, uh, and we're still waiting almost, it'll be two years. It's coming up March. Mm. He was arrested the weekend. My son passed away. Okay. Have you been able to connect with other families? I mean, have once something like that happens, I feel like a lot of times you're so desperate. You you reach out and you try and find that community that can identify and help. Have you been able to find other people and have support? Yeah, we found other people that have lost children, not necessarily from fentanyl. My wife is on a Facebook page that's nothing but parents who have lost their children to fentanyl. It's very, mm -hmm. very sad. Um, but we have from a standpoint where, you know, parents who have lost children. And yes, the, it, there is you know, some comfort. I mean, we're, we're, we're very, we're Christians, we're believers and, and there's a greater hope than just this in this world for us. But, but we want to, um, you know, we just, we want parents. It, it's one thing to tell your kids this, but it, I just think, like I said a while ago, I think it's more than saying, don't use this it, because it, it can be in anything. Right. And it's just more about, it's just a, it's, it's, I mean, the DEA, We've talked to the U.S. attorney and they say that four out of 10 pills that are, are, are legally on the street now have a lethal dose of fentanyl. And that's terrifying. And so I have a question. Were there warning signs as we're talking to other parents and and we want to make them aware of this crisis? Were there things that you noticed or things that parents could look for if they're concerned about their children? using fentanyl or other drugs really the only to say as a dad we knew that that he had experimented with drinking beer and we knew that he had smoked pot a couple of times but anything else no there was not any warning signs and we had talked to him about you know you know about addiction and about right. alcohol and, and marijuana but we you know we have a a huge high school in auburn alabama and we have a huge college town so you just you have people that, you know, that use marijuana, like people that drink beer, it's just very common. Right. And I think for my son growing up, that, that is the, that's kind of the hole in all of this where, uh, kids go, well, you know, all these people smoke pot. And I think that can open the door up mm -hmm. for other things that could potentially kill your child or kill yourself. If you're using that. Right. Because you, you can justify it then. What do you think about the medical marijuana bill that just passed? And do you, I mean, have you thought about that at all in terms of being in a college town with high school kids and the easy access that they'll now have to dispensaries? And um, I guess it's not, it, they won't be able to smoke it, but you can, you can eat use a gummy. It. To be, I mean, use it. Right. I mean, to be honest with you, anything that is mind altering. And I think, we can all agree that alcohol, marijuana, all of these are mind altering drugs is that they can, they can make you do or not do things because it's altered your brain, right? They're not, they're not good. And, and so I, I, I don't support that. And I know a lot of people do, but at the end of the day, uh, I think marijuana, I think is a gateway drug to other things. Mm -hmm. And yeah, especially and, when you're and, in a college, that, that may not be popular opinion today, but, I well, think well let me let me ask you, and and I appreciate you being on so much. B before the tragedy that affected your family, 
Um, what would have been your attitude about medical marijuana? Would it have been one of those things which you would have said, eh, you know, hey, that's what people want to do. You want to do it? Because I, I think that is the situation that a lot of Alabamians are in is since it doesn't affect them directly, they're like, well, let everybody, you know, let people do what they want. Um, but y'all are living proof that you start down this road, bad things can happen. Well, we are. And I think if you, I mean, to me, having, if, if all states are on board with something like that, to me, I think that, and this sounds crazy, but it makes a little bit more sense in some states that do it and some that don't. Because then at the end of the day, kids that live in a state like we lived in at one point that doesn't have, have the sale of medical marijuana where other states do, I think that confuse it, to me, it legitimizes right. drug dealers mm-hmm. in a way. Right. Yep. Yeah. And it, and, and it go, says well, we accept it. Yeah. Well, it does. And I think it also, um, and, and if you ask your kids not to do drugs, they're going to say, well, why not? Everybody else just right. goes to the store you know, and get some. Right. I mean, so, why not? Well, I know we are kind of running out of time, but what, how can Alabama, I know you're probably frustrated and you've referenced this, that there aren't any state laws and in terms of going after drug dealers, what have you researched and found out And what in Alabama, what can we do better? Um, obviously, we don't have as much control over what's coming across the border, but we can control how law enforcement acts in Auburn, Alabama and um, around the state. So what would you advocate for? Well, obviously, I'm not a lawmaker, but I, I do think we need we need laws, legislation passed that where if you're caught with with drugs that contain fentanyl, those are those are almost like weapons that can kill somebody. Right. And if you are if you're caught selling that to a person and that person dies, then there ought to be murder charges. There ought to be consequences to actions because, I mean, the whole justice system currently, I can this is a whole nother topic. You know, I know y'all don't want to get off that. It is no, broken. We love, so we, we love surprise topics. Keep going. <laughs> well, it, it's just it, it's a it's a broken system where now the criminals have all become victims and. And, and there needs to be consequences to action. Just like I said at the very beginning, my son did bear responsibility in his death. But I don't think my son thought, hey, I'm fixing to take something that's going to kill me. No. He just wanted to watch Justice League. And Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And so, Scott, when you were in the legislature, was this even on? I mean, that was. No, I mean, the, the biggest synthetic drug at that time was golly, some kind of. We didn't even know what it was. I mean, it wasn't having near the effect that fentanyl is. Um, but but there is this, there's this weird, it's not just in, in government, but all through, through law enforcement. There's almost a weird protectiveness of the drug industry. And that may not That's make a bizarre. lot of sense. Well, I mean, think about it. We, we talk about having a drug war. We talk about trying to stop this, trying to stop that. But there's this weirdness that we just really won't get after it. You know what I'm saying? And it's is like he's saying, fentanyl is terrible. I mean, it's killing people by the thousands every year, and we can't manage to try to stop it from coming in. We can't really go after the people who are selling it. No one's um, coming up with legislation that says, we catch you with drugs with fentanyl in it. You're going to prison for a very, very, very long time. I mean, it's... I don't understand why we don't engage on it. It's, there's a strange situation there. I've always felt like that certain people 
may be involved in mm, yeah. in the drug business. What? And, Conspiracy theorists. Well, yeah, but I mean, there seems to be almost no other answer for why that we're so sense, soft actually. on this issue. Just don't you think why not? Different though. Like I and Ray. I mean, like I have my oldest is at Auburn, and I mean he goes out like all these bars and 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 like to me, okay, you brush up against some cocaine you're going to brush up against it. And as long as it's not going in your body, you're okay. You brush up against somebody that has fentanyl on their sleeve or on their hand or where, I mean, you're dying. I mean, it is, it is to me, this is a whole, and it's like you said, it's a, and, and friend, um, what, what's the group, the fentanyl, um, not friends of fentanyl. That would not be it. But, where they're fighting to have it labeled as a weapon of mass destruction because it's more potent than sarin gas. It's like, we're not dealing with, you know, 1960 weed. Right. We're, we're, wow, this true. is something serious and there's a real fear there and I, and it's growing. It's the, um, statistics CDC says is now the leading cause of death between 18 and 45 year olds. Um, fentanyl overdose. That's, well, Hello. well, I think Ray hits a good point when he says, well, maybe something will happen when the right person, the right person's child is affected because there's <laughs> got to be something that kicks us off. I mean, I, yeah. I hear Ray's story and I'm like, we've got to do something. You just read the news. Well, we've got to do something. You know, this, what you said a while ago, I, I think was, you know, to me, one thing that I, I've done since this happened, I've asked myself a lot of hard questions. And, uh, you know, as a parent, I, I'm not sure if any time you're in a situation, you could always say, hey, I wish I would have done more. Right. Uh, but I, I, I could also look at our government and I could say these things that we're capable of. We are capable of shutting down our border. Correct. We are capable from a military standpoint, going to every cartel in South America and annihilating it and wiping it off the face of the earth. We choose not to. Mm-hmm. So we have the ability to do it. But like you said a while ago, I'm not being a conspiracy theorist, but we can stop this if we truly want to, because we are the greatest country on earth, but we choose not to. Mm -hmm. And the question is, is why, why do we choose not to? Yep. I agree completely. I'm and hopefully on a state level to bring it back to Alabama, maybe our legislators will get around to doing something. And then when we start hearing the hue and cry of, well, we're going to fill up the prisons, maybe somebody will say, we're not if they'll quit selling it. Yeah. I well, mean, isn't that the easy answer? It's the classic case of like people don't change unless there are consequences. I don't care if you're right. a toddler or an adult, but if these right. drug dealers think they can just go and make a quick buck right. while kids are dying or adults are dying. Or the drug dealer saying, hey, look, I'm, this better well, not and have... Well, and the other, the other part to that that, I, that I, I didn't get a chance to finish is that there's probably no family in America that can honestly say drugs has not impacted somebody in their family for the last 40 to 50 years. Nobody right. can say that. That's right. But it's, it is a destroyer, and it's almost like we're just to the point where let's just let it keep destroying. I mean, it has annihilated families. It's taken men and just and women, and it's made them not be good parents. It's mm-hmm. destroyed kids in the womb of their mother because their mothers are addicted. But yet we we still tolerate it. And I just I and these are the questions I ask myself: Why? Or what are we scared of? Mm-hmm. To put our foot down and say we're not going to tolerate it. We're going to keep it out of this country no matter what. And we could do it. We could. 
Ray, I appreciate you very much. You and Any- Ray need to get together and come up with your plans on it how will. we're going to do this. Because y'all, be. yeah, y'all, y'all got some ideas. It I can be tell. Considered draconian, but <laughs> I mean that uh, might be what we need. Is what will work. That might be what we need. <clears throat> Ray, would you like the last word? We're about to be down to the bottom of the hour. Yeah, I, I would just, you know, any parents that are listening, you know, <clears throat> you never know when the last moment's going to be with your kids. Mm-hmm. And if you can just hug them and kiss them and, and just uh, spend time with them, especially in the Word of God, that means more than anything. And, uh, you know, and just talk to them about how the world is going to try to trick them into being addicted to things, whether it's alcohol, nicotine, or drugs, and they're, they're going to do nothing but just take away your life. Mm-hmm. And just don't fall into that trap. If, if parents, you can educate your kids in a loving way that it, it hopefully can save their lives. And that's my our family's wish for every every child. No parent. I have prayers about this. I don't want any child to die, and I don't want any parent to lose a child because it's it's not good. But it's 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 the road that we're walking on, and and, and it's part of our lives. So. Ray, I appreciate you very very much. It's Ray you. Hornsby giving us uh, his testimony about how. Fentanyl has affected his family. We appreciate it very much. And, um, I mean, listening to Ray, it's a normal family. Yeah. A, a lot of people think of oh, these things happen to uh, that, that weird family over there, that family in San Francisco or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is this is Auburn, Alabama, straight up all American family, solid Christian family, mm-hmm. uh, one time thing maybe yeah. possibly. Yeah, and uh, takes a takes a little boy's life or a young man's life. It's humbling in that it could well, be it's scary. any of us. It could be any of us. Cause I mean, you know, we all have kids who we know are like, well, I'll try it one time. So and so, and it only takes once. That's it. And, and I think that's the big difference. We always say, we're not talking about the pot or marijuana from the sixties. Um, we're talking about stuff now that you die. In a, in a short amount of time. We're not even talking about, oh, they're overdosed and maybe we can save them and let's get them to the hospital. We're talking about done. And um, I don't know how we, how do we warn people? That's what this show is for, warning people. Right. But surely our government on a state level will, will start to engage and deal with it. I think the size of the problem feels like, and, and I don't mean this in a positive way, magnificent. Like it feels enormous and how can we get our arms around it? Right. But we have to, I think there's something to being very afraid of right. the situation because along with the size, there is this fear. And then who else is involved? Like you said, who wants to keep this as their pet project? Mm-hmm. Who doesn't really want this to change? Maybe people who won't lips. Let, and and those are the questions. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people want fewer people. There's a lot of people who, and Satan is here to kill, steal, yes. and destroy. And so much of it must be from a, some sort of spiritual realm. And that it's like every day, everything is one more, yes, one more topic that's destroying people in their lives. And it's a mess. It is. Do you want to send us, we'll be back with our next guest. I think you did. Like Allison said, we'll uh, be back with our next guest after this. This is Alabama Unfiltered. We'll be right back. Price Hornsby, only 17 years old, was discovered in his bed by his mother inside their Auburn, Alabama home. The AHS graduate was preparing to serve his country in the U.S. Space Force. Illicit fentanyl fatally poisons one person every 7.70 minutes. 
Learn more at familiesagainstfentanyl.org. Welcome back to Alabama Unfiltered. This is the program today where we're talking about fentanyl, which is kind of the the drug epidemic that no one wants to talk about, but we are here doing it. And we just had a great interview earlier, but now we have Dr. Boyd Harrison with us, who is uh, Dr. Harrison. Um, I know you're an internal medicine doctor, but you you seem to specialize in opioid addiction, those kinds of things. Is that a, is that a fair description of you? Well, I'm a fam- I'm a family physician, but yes, sir. I'm located in Haleyville, Alabama, which is in Winston County. And for many years, this I'm 30, 40 miles from Jasper. That was the epicenter of the hydrocodone mm. overuse mm-hmm. in Alabama. So right. by virtue of the fact that I'm, I've lived here, I became interested and involved in treating people for opiate dependence and addiction. Okay, that's great. I remember when uh, the, the Walker County was what? either the top or in the top 10 for drug overdoses in the country, something like that. It, 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 it was, and still, I believe, remains the highest per capita utilization of hydrocodone in the country. And because the United States uses uh, 98% of the hydrocodone, that would make Walker County be the uh, highest per capita in the world. Yeah. What do you attribute that to? You know, I've been here for 41 years, almost 41. And, and, you know, I was here when hydrocodone really came out as Vicodin, Lortab, and Lorset. And it it just became very common. You know, and the people in in Walker County, there's a lot of coal mining there, a lot of underground mining. And these people, you know, work in a very hard, uh, uncomfortable environment where injuries are not uncommon. Mm-hmm. And I think it may have been associated with that. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't have any scientific evidence, but just anecdotally and looking at it, people who work in, in hard jobs oftentimes get injured and then they need some medication to help them through it. But unfortunately, we were we as physicians were being marketed so aggressively that by, to- by being told to give more, you know, the pain score and all of those things that contributed to the the prescription opioid problem, which was, in my opinion, a precursor to the non-prescription opioid problem we have today. Yeah, and speaking of that, this show is is a lot about fentanyl, and uh, people have discussed how fentanyl is a synthetic, and I guess it's a synthetic opioid. Kind of where does fentanyl lie in that whole world of opioids is it well fentanyl was originally uh, synthesized by paul jansen who uh who was jansen pharmaceuticals he not only synthesized fentanyl but several analogs of fentanyl and uh and it it is a strong antibody i mean strong pain medicine the only way that i have virtually ever used it is for a fentanyl patch that stays on somebody for three days. And there were people who would not take the patch off and who overused that medication. When fentanyl first came out, it was only used by anesthesiologists before the fentanyl patches. And then there was, of course, the prescription medicine that was uh, infamously used a lot by some pain doctors in Mobile 
uh, and and there was a very big uh, uh, case, and it was actually went to the Supreme Court, and and part of that uh, conviction was remanded back to the lower court uh, just a few months ago. So uh, so that was a fentanyl based product, but what we're getting now is is being uh, exported primarily from China into Mexico and then converted into Mexico. In listening to the first part of your of your interview, <coughs> you were talking about the pressed pills. And and these people will sometimes uh, import the or have the fentanyl brought to them in this country. And then they will take these presses and make pills that look like uh, in in the young Hornsby gentleman uh, that, that looks like a, a Percocet or an oxycodone. Uh, they actually have have some that up in this area of Alabama are called dirty thirties because it's it's supposed to look like a roxycodone thirty milligram when in fact it is fentanyl. But one of the uh, one of the stories that we have heard about is is when some DEA people tapped the telephone of some people that were uh, cutting the fentanyl. And cutting it means putting other stuff with it so that it's dilute enough that it won't kill everybody, but uh, but they can sell it. And uh, there was a phone call as somebody was saying, well, what's the difference between a microgram and a milligram? Mm. And, <laughs> that's that's the people mixing it up. Yeah, yeah, that's the people oh, mixing it up. And, and what what the difference is is about twenty deaths a weekend. And right. because you know a, a a milligram is one thousand micrograms, and if they don't know what they're doing, and remember that thing that you were looking, it is just an incredibly infinitesimally small amount of these strong fentanyls. And and I say fentanyls because there are analogs of fentanyl. We don't, they don't know what they're getting. They don't know if it's plain fentanyl or mm. car fentanyl or Sioux fentanyl. And these are orders of magnitude stronger. So if, if they don't know exactly what they're doing, uh, you know, there's people that can get, uh, get killed from it. And, and you know, j- just like this young fellow. You yeah, that's what, that was our question. And I guess you're saying, doctor, that there's a very good chance that this stuff is, is brought in bulk. And somebody who clearly is doing common core math doesn't know the difference in micrograms <laughs> nice. and milligrams. And then they're mixing this thing up and they're selling it to somebody. They're not necessarily trying to kill their customers, but, but what are this they stuff trying is, to do? This, yeah, what are they're I just trying understand. to get people addicted oh, but, because fentanyl addicts them. And let, let me tell you about this. Okay. Too many addicted people because they're not thinking, making good decisions. If they hear of a an overdose or a, a place where they have multiple overdoses in the weekend, mm-hmm. what their thought process is, oh, I got to go get some of that stuff. It must be really good. Really? They, they Yes, they go toward it. They go toward the strong stuff rather than be afraid of it because they think they can control it. And there must be a good high because remember the, the addict, the truly addicted person, they're looking for that feeling they got the first time they used it, mm. you know, and, and you just can't get back there. 
are medically the therapeutic window for getting that superb high like they got the first one is so close to overdose that it it's it's a very small window to get there and i i don't I, i've talked to many people who have opioid use disorder over the years and 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 they just want to feel that again but uh, i've had many many tell me that once they feel it they'll never feel that again so and that's the answer i mean they they're wanting to get their customers you're you're wanting to get them to that line right without without killing them the problem is you don't know the difference between a milligram and a microgram or or which version and you were right. talking to us doctor before the show and i think it's it's fascinating and we our viewers probably won't be able to see the picture but maybe you can explain it to us the three different types of fentanyl and how much is a lethal dose and, and i don't think people really realize how little it actually takes yep. so could you describe that to us you can actually go on Google Images and search for uh, lethal doses of heroin and fentanyl. And there are three bottles. Okay. And they have what is called the LD50, the lethal dose for 50% of the people of heroin and fentanyl as a powder and of carfentanyl. And as I was telling you before the show, I call that people fentanyl horse fentanyl, and there's another one that you would, if you saw it, you would just see an empty bottle, and that's called Sioux fentanyl. So that's people fentanyl, horse fentanyl, and elephant fentanyl. It is an order of magnitude stronger than the car fentanyl. It is just ridiculously dangerous, and there is no approved human medical indication for that. It's, it's not an approved medication at so, all. So a tiny little speck of dust size grain of the is, lethal, yeah. is lethal yeah i've heard I, I don't i don't have this verified but i've heard that there were dea agents cleaning up a, a drug mixing lab where they were cutting it and there was some uh some of the stronger fentanyl there and that they got some on their skin and they had to be treated for overdose oh they had to goodness. be given narcan but l let me tell you recently uh patient overdosed and he died of fentanyl overdose and is as best we know he bought marijuana that was coated in fentanyl well how much do you think that big pharma and doctors are responsible for this you know you you start with you know now, Oxycontin the, and things like that. How long, and, how long do we have? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> about 10 minutes. Okay, mm, well, I can, I can give you a few hours on this. Uh, Big Pharma is largely responsible for uh, the marketing that was done in the late 90s and early 2000s that, that made us use pharmaceutical pain medicine much more generously, in fact, too generously. And it is my belief that a lot of the stuff that went on then has led indirectly or directly to the opioid crisis we have in America today. Because people uh, just keep looking for that next better high. And now yeah. what's coming from the doctor's office isn't doing it. Well, and do they also right. not think that because I was originally prescribed this by my doctor, it must be okay? Yes. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I have people that come to me. Oh, no, I, I've got to have it. You don't understand. I hurt that bad. You know, I tell the story about a guy who who hurt his back. He said, I said, what's wrong? He said, I hurt my back. And he keeps telling you that. And I said, when did you hurt your back? He said, when I was playing football. I said, when were you playing football? He said, in high school. I said, heck, you're 60 years old. <laughs> right. Wow. You know, once you get yeah. started on this, there, there are statistics that show that people that take pain medicine for a week may be taking it a month. If they take it a month, they're liable to be taking it six months. And if they stay on it six months, they'll be on it a year and longer. Mm-hmm. It, it's not the getting on. It's the getting off that is harder for the doctors. And, and I'll go back 20 years. It was easier. I, I heard people say it was eat 30 seconds to yes, 30 minutes to no. When you're mm-hmm. having to explain to the patient that if you keep taking this medication, ultimately it's going to, you're going to have rebound pain. It's going to make your pain worse. Right. So, you know, we as physicians own some of that responsibility because we didn't really, we listened to this big pharma advertising that coerced us into believing things that we really didn't believe. And then we prescribed more pain medicine than we should have. And then, then the pendulum started swinging back the other way that we shouldn't be prescribing that much. And then the patients that about approximately one out of four patients that take a, a, an opioid gets more from it than the other three. Those people have a vulnerability mm. right. to become uh, at least dependent on it, if not going on down the road to addiction. That is a vulnerability. You know, you take four people that have never had it. They take the same thing. Two of them say, yeah, I could feel it. One of them said, yeah, I didn't, didn't hardly feel it. And one said, oh, that was the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Mm. So 25%. It's weird how different people yeah. are affected. Adds up. I'm fascinated, Dr. Harrison, um, and and you may not even be in, in on this study, but the whole idea of we went through an opioid epidemic, what, in the late, 1800s, 1890s, early well, 1900s. Actually, the, first, the, first, the first opioid epidemic in America uh, was after the Civil War. And it was primarily in the South, and it was called soldier's disease. And that was the first opioid uh, epidemic. And it was uh, during, and that was in the 1865 to 75 yes, range. Sir. And then we had the, uh, they synthesized heroin, which is diacetyl morphine. And then at the turn of the century, of the 19th to the 20th century, you had the opium wars. And the, you know, the, that's been, then you had laws passed that, that told every country they had to regulate opium. And so uh, that, that stuff that I've, I've read on uh, and, and became just very interested in. And that, that's where the regulation came. But, you know, we, we think that, our country, we're leading the uh, thing. You're talking about Alex Berenson's book. You know, Mexico actually regulated marijuana before we did. So mm-hmm. there are other people who, who have done a good job. The Harrison Narcotic Act of 1914 is the one that started the regulation of the sale of, of opioids. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that's been changed a few times uh, and added to, but uh, it, 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 Really, physicians and big pharma 
had a lot to do with uh, doing this. They're an excellent uh, series on uh, some of the networks that you can watch about this, about how the prescription farm, I don't know if I'm supposed to mention a name like that. So, but um, it, it's, it's very good. So where do we go from here? What, what can we actually do about this? As while I was in the, in the board of medical examiners, uh, we started a lecture series in about 2008 that continues to this day. And there is now a requirement that if you're going to write controlled substances, you have to get uh, some uh, continuing medical education specifically in opioid prescribing or controlled substance prescribing every two years. <clears throat> with, with the evolution of that lecture series, we have seen prescription opioids in, in Alabama uh, go down by a greater percentage than any other state. Unfortunately, because we were so far ahead, uh, we, we had further it, to go. though we had a 35, 37% drop 2014 to 15, we were still the highest in the number of prescriptions. But let me say that there's a caveat. Alabama wrote more numbers of prescriptions, but we didn't have as many prescription opioid deaths because we didn't write as strong pain medicine as West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, up in there, they they paid for some of the stronger Oxycontin mm -hmm. at a higher approval rate than Alabama did. And because we didn't pay for that in Alabama, uh, not as many people died of the prescription overdose. We had a lot of people taking prescriptions, but we were somewhat had a small amount of insulation from prescription opioid deaths. So that was, you know, some foresight of some people in Alabama of not giving in to the marketing pitch of give them more and more. I have to ask, I would be remiss if I didn't, because this whole conversation really focuses on pain management. If you talk about fentanyl, which I think we're all saying it wrong, we're saying fentanyl. I think it's right. fentanyl. It's in That's yeah. exactly right. It's I'm going to start going with okay. Dr. Harrison. Okay. Okay. So fentanyl um, is all about pain. That's why these opioids are originally prescribed. With this legalizing of medical marijuana, how do you feel about that? Is that a legitimate pain management tool that we can use? Or do you think it just opens the door more to leading to this? First of all, Jerry Harrison, as a practicing physician, I do not know of but one medical indication and I, that I think has been studied for marijuana, and that is for treating glaucoma as an adjunct. I don't call it medical marijuana. I call it recreational medical marijuana got in a way to subvert the uh, federal laws. I disagree with it. I wholeheartedly, vehemently disagree with it. The attitude that we have about mar mar marijuana started in the 60s when it was 2 to 3% THC. Right. Now the marijuana, some of it's 30 plus percent. Uh, and one of the theories that I have is that the, the old marijuana, you know, people just, oh, man, 
you know, they were they were <laughs> right. laid back. Dazed and confused. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but Cheech and Chong said, hey, man, is who is that at the door? Is it cops? Yeah. So they had paranoia associated with that right. when it was 2 to 3% THC. Now we're talking about 30 plus percent THC. And in Alex Berenson's book that you were talking about earlier, there is associated an increase in violence with these people that are using this marijuana. And my theory is that you take that and you take the, this newer form of uh, fentanyl. The, they call it P2P fentanyl. It has uh, impurities in it that increase the risk and rate of psychosis. Yes. So if the people are using both of those things, they can have an incredibly uh, increased amount of violence and psychosis. And, and you know, I've got, I've got a patient here who spent time in jail. He was using methamphetamine before he went. He got straight when he got out. First weekend he was out, he used methamphetamine again, and now it's been several months, and he's still just fully psychotic. Not right. Oh, mm. goodness. Wow. That is rough. Well, Dr. Harrison, we appreciate you visiting with us, and uh, we'll try to have you on again sometime. Your expertise yeah. is uh, very much Please. appreciated here, and we appreciate the work that you do. I am, I am passionate about trying to help people use opiates for an appropriate, in an appropriate dose for an appropriate period of time, but getting off. When the, you know, a broken ankle heals up in a few, few weeks. You don't need to be taking pain medicine for it for years. Yes, sir. Absolutely. We're going to take another break. This is Alabama Unfiltered, and the ladies will be back with our next guest right after this. Fentanyl facts. Fentanyl is added to heroin to increase its potency or be disguised as highly potent heroin. Many users believe that they are purchasing heroin and actually don't know that they are purchasing fentanyl, which often results in overdose deaths. United States Drug Enforcement Administration. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking with us with this edition of Alabama Unfiltered, where we're talking all things fentanyl. And right now we are joined by Richard Tucker, who's a former DEA, and he owns a drug consulting group. Richard, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So what is your background? I started my law enforcement career in Georgia in 1974 as a police officer in the metro Atlanta area. And my last six years of a 10-year tour there at the police department, I spent supervising a multi-agency narcotics group uh, in 1983. I took an assignment with the DEA as a special agent, and DEA transferred me to the Denver Field Division, where I was assigned to a methamphetamine motorcycle gang investigation group uh, and did some training there. And uh, I'm certified by the federal courts as an expert in the manufacture of methamphetamine, and that's what I did undercover. Uh, we met uh, manufacturers of methamphetamine undercover. Uh, they paid a significant fee to have me come to their labs and observe them manufacture methamphetamine uh, in an undercover capacity. And uh, I, I did labs all over the West from Denver out to California, down to Texas, up to Montana. I did that for, for five and a half years in the Denver Field Division. Uh, wanted to broaden my horizons a bit. I left Denver in uh, 1987 and moved to Southeast Asia, to Southern Thailand. And I spent <laughs> That's definitely expanding your horizons. Okay. Now we're, okay, keep going. I thought you were going to say like, I moved to Massachusetts. No. Okay. 
I am the uh, I'm the only redneck that I know that's certified to speak fluent Thai. That's uh, impressive. I, I'm a I'm a fluent Thai speaker. I didn't realize I have a, a, a proficiency for languages, but I was told that I do. So I speak fluent Thai. I speak Lao. I speak enough Chinese to order lunch. Uh, but I spent six and a half years in southern Thailand uh, working with the Thai government, and the DEA, uh, intercepting heroin shipments going down the, the Malaysia Peninsula through Malaysia to Singapore, going to the United States. Uh, and also money coming back in, we intercepted those. So I did that for, for six and a half years in Southern Thailand. Uh, took another assignment back in the United States and went to Los Angeles and worked in an organized crime uh, intelligence group on the West Coast. Did that for three years and was promoted and became a group supervisor. And I went down to the El Paso office where I supervised uh, an undercover operation where we had a trucking company uh, that had three trucks, two 10-wheel trucks and an 18-wheeler. And we contracted with, a Sinal, uh, with the uh, Warriors drug cartel to haul all their cocaine and marijuana for 18 months. And uh, they would bring the dope across the border. We would, we would uh, manifest it and load it in our trucks. If, it, if, it, if we didn't think the traffickers were going to follow us, we actually loaded it on uh, United States airplanes with the National Guard out of Kansas and transported it all over the country. And they paid us a quarter million dollars up front and $500 a kilo for marijuana and uh, $600, $600 a kilo for cocaine. Uh, this is so, Ozark. This, this is, is this wild. Is, okay. Amy Beth and I what? secretly love all these like Mission Impossible. I, I'm so intrigued. This I am is crazy. Because like if I passed you on the street, I wouldn't put this as your life. So, and we're only like in 1990 something, aren't we? Yeah, we're up to, uh, we're, we're up to, uh, let's see, we're in El Paso. We're up to about 96 Okay, I'm graduating from high school, and you're running drugs across the border. Okay, so keep going. We we uh, we, we let them bring it across the border. We didn't help them bring it across the border. They brought it across to us. We had a warehouse with lights and camera. We'd manifest it, videotape everything, and then we'd put it in the trucks and transport it to wherever it was going to go. And then we'd contact somebody with state law enforcement and DEA, only two contacts. I had a 20-man crew in my unit. Uh, and we would deliver it, collect our money on the other end, and then we'd head back to El Paso, all the while putting transponders in the dope. And then when it opened up, when they opened it up, then the DEA and the local police there would find out that it was there. So we went all over the country. Uh, we were we were working seven days a week doing this all over the country. So uh, after El Paso, after that operation shut down, we indicted several members of the war's drug cartel. And then I went back to Southeast Asia and supervised a multi-agency heroin task force out of the embassy in Bangkok with DEA Customs. Uh, the Treasury Department at that time, uh, Thai law enforcement, military and police monitoring heroin trafficking groups out of Southeast Asia. And I was promoted again, fortunately, out of that assignment, became the deputy assistant administrator in DEA's headquarters in charge of international intelligence operations in Washington. So I ran international intelligence for DEA for three years in Washington. Uh, and then after that, I uh, was transferred back out. I want to go back out in the field, took an assignment as an assistant special agent in charge in the Chicago Field Division, where I ran the gang task force, I had six enforcement groups that were responsible that reported to me uh, working on street gang members in Chicago. There's about 180,000 street gang members in Chicago. Most of the homicides you see coming out of Chicago are, are due to turf wars over over uh, over uh, drug sites, drug locations, real estate. Stayed there till 2008. I retired in 2008, and and when I upon my retirement, I opened up a consulting uh, firm. 
and I run the drug education consulting group. And what I do is I, con- I consult with the healthcare industry, urine drug testing companies, organizations like the Medical Association for the State of Alabama. And I basically do what we're doing here today. We talk about drug trafficking trends. We talk about what's prolific on the street today, what's changing, uh, how prescription drugs are abused, DEA regulations and that type of stuff. Uh, as a matter of fact, just pr- prior to joining you guys, I was on a call with some with some doctors out in Idaho talking about that very thing. So I do that uh, uh, virtually and in person uh, probably uh, eight to ten times a week uh, and then and do and to do informal in, informative stuff like this uh, around the country. So uh, I like to still think that I'm active in it and, and I keep my contact with the DEA <laughs> as okay. an educational resource. Well, now that we know you're qualified, I guess we'll continue the interview. <laughs> <laughs> My but goodness. just barely. I mean, well, okay, fascinating. We'll have to tell some stories. We'll have to have you back on to just tell sure. like some of the stories. I'm sure they're crazy. Um, I'm glad you're still alive and with us, by the way, because it sounds like could be quite you, dangerous. Yes. Well, according according to my wife, that's the only talent I've got. Is, uh, <laughs> so, well, it's a pretty so. big talent, an important one, but. I'm so curious because you've kind of been in this world for so long. How, where we are today, compare it to the 70s, 80s, 90s, what we've walked through. I mean, in my head, I, and it could, might be because I have kids now um, that are, you know, anywhere from 20 to 14. So we're really talking about a lot of these things. Like we're in a place that we've never been in terms of access and potency with some of the drugs on the streets and things that are happening. I don't know if that's true though. So do you feel that way from where we started? What, what, we're, what we're seeing today is, is the, the use of synthetic drugs. Uh, we're seeing man-made drugs and then in the, what they call the novel psychoactive category. So what we've got is we've got chemists that are available to manufacture drugs that give the same euphoria that drugs we've used historically have done. Uh, the, the, the Southeast Asian cartels and the Latin American cartels find it highly expensive to manufacture heroin, diacetylmorphine. You have to grow the opium poppy plants. You got to pay a farmer to go out and lance the poppy plant. You got to turn that into morphine, turn it into opium, then turn it into heroin. It's a, it's a, it's a labor intensive process. And then you got to smuggle it across. You got to smuggle it across the border. So uh, a 2.25 pound kilo brick of, of, of heroin is about like this. So it's very hard to do that. And then they found out they could synthesize fentanyl. So in the early 2000s, we began to see traffickers bring this fentanyl stuff into America. Okay. Uh, and it was in powder form. And, and as Dr. Harrison referred, uh, alluded to earlier, the, the, the American drug dealer and the American drug user doesn't know the difference between a microgram and a milligram. Mm. And so I can vividly remember in 2005, the, the first day that we saw uh, fentanyl, uh, being cut with heroin in Chicago because we had 11 people die in 30 minutes. Oh my. And that day nationwide, we had 82 people die. And, and the wiretap conversation that Dr. Harrison alluded to earlier was one of my group's wiretap. And we had a trafficker talking in code back to Mexico. And they were talking about money laundering and dope and moving. And he mentioned these 11 people dying. Hmm. And he asked the guy, he said, look, you sent me the instructions on how to take care of this stuff. So hmm. what they were doing is they quarter the drugs out. So if I get a, if I get a gram of heroin, I'll cut it into four sections. And then I'll dilute it with manite or mannitol to cut and I increase my profit. So now instead of having one gram, I got four grams. Well, they wanted to add some extra oomph to it. So the traffickers in Mexico said, hey, put some of this fentanyl in there. And on the notes, they said, add a microgram. Well, 
a West Side Chicago heroin dealer has never heard of a microgram. <laughs> so he put a quarter milligram in there, oh my. which was about 10,000 times more than he should have. Hmm. And so when these folks ingested this heroin at this, at this level with the fentanyl in there, it was killing them uh, right away. So that's when we begin to see fentanyl pop into the, into, the, um, the, into the national culture with heroin. And so they started inducing it to heroin. And then the heroin trafficker, uh, heroin users began to say, hey, I need some of this stuff. Again, Dr. Harrison told the story. And that was that we, we, he and I had a conversation about this. We had we, the, the day that those 11 people died in Chicago, we had people come from all over Illinois to flood to the, to the downtown area of Chicago. And they told the media openly, we're looking for that killer heroin. Unbelievable. Oh, wow. Hmm. That, isn't that amazing that a substance could make a reasonable thinking human turn into an irrational, I'm running to get something that could kill me. Like, this is what I want to do today. I, I can't, I'm having a hard time wrapping my brain around that. As, a, as, a, as addiction specialist will tell you that, that these opiates used in, in, in illegal amounts cause such a commotion in your brain and you're producing dopamine and you're getting you're getting this euphoria like you've never had before. Uh, and, and they want that they'll, and they'll do anything to get it. I mean, the, the American psychiatric uh, journals have like 12 pages uh, talked about addiction. And I can tell you what addiction is. It's when you're willing to do stupid stuff to, to get stupid. Mm. Uh, and so and so if you're willing to sell your mother's jewelry, if you're willing to rob somebody, you're willing to kill somebody and you're willing to do something that, you know, in your heart is detrimental to your own physical health. Uh, that's a problem. Your brain's been hijacked by this substance. And the stronger opioids we see now we're into fentanyl. I mean, now we're in the prescription opioids. I know I know a lot of this discussion was around prescription opioids. And again, we've got some of these high potency uh, drugs out there from the pharmaceutical industry that captivate the brain to try to suppress pain. And then the user all of a sudden has to stop using them and they have to start finding substitutes for that because the brain's not going to stop asking. Right. They don't want to go through that withdrawal. And then we, that, that patient has led to the illicit market and they start, they start experimenting with heroin. They start experimenting with fentanyl. And now there's a new drug out there, uh, an analog of a drug called nitazine. It's a novel psychoactive that's 10 times more potent than fentanyl. Oh my word. And so we've, we just saw 500 overdoses in New York about a month ago. And when the EMTs and the nurses and the doctors in emergency rooms hit these folks with Narcan and they'd been using nitazine, the brain just re rebuked it, kicked it out. Didn't happen. So, so they weren't able to stop overdoses with this stuff, this stuff called nitazine. Why is that? How is it different? And it, is hit it... The brain, it, hit the, it hit the receptors in the brain so fast and so hard. And nitazine was was produced by Upjohn back during the 50s and and given to the FDA for approval as a pain medication. And the FDA said, no, this stuff is way too strong. Oh my gosh, the, if the FDA is saying no, you know it's bad. Yeah. And so the FDA said, this is way too way too strong. We're not going to do it. This is before the days of the DEA. This is back in the days of the, the, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Uh, this is back before the UN and their member states codified the Controlled Substances Act around. And so we, we saw this and they said, nope, not going to do it. The trouble is, is that is that these drugs are still out there. The formula for these drugs are still out there. So DEA just classified on an emergency basis uh, these eight analogs of this drug, nitazine, iso, meta, uh, floral nitazine. And what they do is they change the molecular structure to try to beat the Controlled Substance Act. Hmm. 
So if the Schedule One of the Controlled Substance Act, like diacetylmorphine, there's a molecular structure. Fentanyl is Schedule Two. It's a medicine. It's got a specific structure. Well, now the traffickers in 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 Asia and in Latin America have about 14 to 16 varieties of fentanyl. And so DEA finally just threw their hands up and said, "Hey, look, if it's not medicinal fentanyl Schedule Two, it's all Schedule One." And they got some pushback from the medical industry, and they got some pushback from Congress because of this. But we had 100,000 people died last year from fentanyl overdoses. So where you said around the year 2000, you started seeing it on the streets. About 2005, early 2000s, 2003 to 2005 in Chicago. So where did it start? Like, where was it coming from then? And where is it mainly coming from now? We were getting it. We were getting it from the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, Chapo Guzman, who he was in the news recently, he was just at a federal prison. His group was sending it to Chicago. They kind of control the 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 distribution of fentanyl in Chicago area. The other cartels in Mexico were sending it, but also there were cartels out of Mexico. I mean, out of China that were doing the same thing to the East Coast. So we saw it coming predominantly from two locations: from China and from Mexico. Now, are they and manufacturing so, it here in the U.S.? Now? No, they're manufacturing it. They're manufacturing it there. As okay. a matter of fact, the the the, the fentanyl that w- that killed the eleven people in Chicago through our wiretap investigation, we were able to track it back directly to the lab in Mexico and find out where they were making it. In. Okay. So, is and it so, expensive? It's not that much compared to manufacturing heroin. It's cheaper. So okay. they have a lower overhead to manufacture this stuff, and their profit is more prolific. Because the user doesn't have to use a milligram, he has to use a microgram. So I can now smuggle, uh, and, and I'll, I'll kind of get ahead of myself a little bit, but since COVID has been over, during COVID, they, they couldn't get anything into the country. Everything was locked down. Mm-hmm. But now that COVID restrictions have been have been lowered, and we have international trade and travel, we've got people crossing the southwest border, uh, the Mexican cartels have said, hey, wait a minute, too many of our customers are dying. We're losing our profit there. Right. I mean, they're not moral or ethical. And they say, we got to have a way to do it. And that's how we got into the counterfeit pills. So the, the dirty 30s that Dr. Harrison was talking about earlier are these counterfeit uh, roxycodone tablets with a 30 on one side and M on the other. They're bringing them across the southwest border in bags of 500,000 oh. per bag. Uh, and the, the, the cartels that control drugs are also controlling are also controlling the migrant population down there. The folks that are crossing the border improperly, illegally, however you want to classify it. But basically, you pay ten thousand dollars to a coyote, and then he smuggles you and your family across. But if you're willing to carry a backpack full of pills across, then they'll cut the price on that and give you a break on the price. Gotcha. Oh my hmm. word! The new drug you spoke about is it um, as lethal like how do you have to do you snort it do you smoke it do you is it you can, pill I mean, form? There, there, there's there's basically three ways to get any substance into your body is to is to take it orally or to snort it pass it across a mucous membrane you can snort it you can insert it uh, anally uh, you, you anytime you have a mucous membrane you can pass it across there or you can you can inject it directly you can dilute it with water and insert it directly into your bloodstream uh, the bloodstream is the fastest. The mucous membrane pops, uh, possibility is the second fastest and orally is the slowest. So that's the way. So these pills are crushable. And the reason they like them is they've got a perforation in the back so they can cut the pill in half. They can quarter it and then they can take the microgram doses off of that. They kind of they kind of have to teach the user how to do this and then they can smoke it. We're seeing folks smoke it now a lot. 
And we're seeing them use it in vaping devices, jewel pens and other vaping devices, right. and also in crack pipes. Oh my so that's my question. You know, with the fentanyl, yeah. my worry is like my son who's 20, he's at Auburn, he's in a bar, he walks by somebody that has it on his sleeve, he gets it on his arm. That, 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 it's not quite that volatile. Uh, I know I heard Dr. Harrison talk about the DEA agents that overdosed. And, and what basically happens is, is that they're in an environment where there's a, a, there's some intense use going on. So the drugs are in the air. So you're crushing tablets, you're manufacturing tablets, or if you're in a trafficker's house where he's got a couple of kilograms of this stuff and the powder's in the air, you can ingest enough by breathing the air to overdose on it. Just the uh, it being absorbed yeah. through your skin, uh, you're not going to get, you're not going to absorb enough through your skin. It's not going to be fast enough to lead you to overdose. But if you breathe it, if it's in the air, or if you're sharing a crack pipe or a water pipe, I mean, hookah bars are now real, real mm. prevalent. And so what pups will do is take a water pipe and they'll use their fentanyl in that. They'll use methamphetamine in that. Or with these jewel devices, these vaping devices, they'll pass it around a room. They'll be sitting there watching football and everybody's using the same vape pen. And if somebody's got fentanyl in there, then you're ingesting the fentanyl inadvertently or, or not. And that's what a lot of people can do it inadvertently and, and, and die from it. Oh, my goodness. So um, families against fentanyl want it to be labeled as a weapon of mass destruction. Do you agree with that? You know, it's it's. It's semantical. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a weapon of mass destruction, but we're wasting time and legislation to do that. Uh, People ask me all the time, how do we stop the drug problem? We convince about uh, about 40 percent of our population to quit get high every day. Uh, uh, We're not putting enough money into education and treatment in this country. I mean, I'm a you don't find a more conservative law enforcement officer than me, but we're not going to arrest our way out of this situation. You call it what you want to. Uh, but until we train the population that this stuff's going to kill you, and if we train the population of how to how to res- res- be, you be responsible and be responsible for their own actions, that's how you do it. But but Congress and I worked in Washington for three years. It was the most th- three uncomfortable years of my life. Is Congress and and a, a conservative Congress will give the money a 1.7 billion dollars to law enforcement, which is like a kick in the bucket, and then a, and a, a more liberal Democratic Congress will give it to treatment. Well, the treatment professionals will tell you $1.7 billion is nothing. And if you'll remember about a month ago, uh, the Biden administration gave treatment, gave $1.7 billion, had a big press conference, and, and everybody was up front waving at the cameras. And in the next Congress we have, if it's Republican, they'll be doing the same thing. Hey, we're giving DEA and Customs Border Protection $1.7 billion. So they've got this cadre of money until they decide they want to get invested in stopping the problem. We're not going to stop it. And calling it a, a weapon of mass destruction I think probably there there's probably not a trafficker in Mexico or China that's going, hey, let's kill all those Americans by giving them drugs uh, because they're making way too much money on it, to be honest with you. But so when Scott was leaving, he was like, we really need to go back to Nancy Reagan's like, just say no, you know, campaign. Well, we, 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 we're, we're not responsible. We're not responsible anymore. Uh, it's like the, it's like this. Uh, Dr. Dr. Harrison alluded to it, and I'm a big ally in him on that. Uh, this legalization of marijuana, this is not a, this is not a medical a, a product. We have no definitive studies on the use of marijuana for analgesics. I was just, I was just at a medical school up in Virginia last week with a, with a Yale trained physician on addic- addictionologist. And he, he said, there are no credible studies on this. He said, he said, there, there's no medical applicability to that. Uh, we, there's this whole CBD oil thing going. 
uh, name me an expert other than Woody Harrelson's brother uh, that's an expert on CBD. Uh, and these are folks that are making money off of it. So uh, we can call you call it what you want. It's a tax thing. And so the Mexican cartels are making the money off of this because nobody wants to go to the dispensary. They can't they don't want to pay the state sales tax right. on it. So now they're buying the illicit weed and the illicit weed. The marketing ploy is they spray a drug called xylazine on there. Or as Dr. Harrison said, someone will put fentanyl on there. Xylazine is a is an anesthetic and a painkiller used in veterinary clinics. And it, it gives a it gives a real strange euphoric effect when humans ingest it. Uh, and so it's not even authorized for human use. So, but 20% of the marijuana that DEA sees recently has xylazine on it. And nobody knows what xylazine is. But there's got to be some way. I mean, if it's coming from Mexico and China, there's got to be, I always say maybe it's not an either or, it's a both and. So maybe it, in my head, it's education. But I mean, if we can cut the pills in half, not literally, but like <laughs> the amount of pills that are coming across the border in half, I mean, at some point, that starts to add up. Is there? Are you saying there's nothing we can do to stop these cartels? Well, yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a geopolitical situation, uh, and, and 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 I try not to get political about this, but the last administration basically uh, called the president of China to task on this and said, "Look, if you guys want good trade with us, one of the things you got to do is stop sending fentanyl to America." Right. So what they did was is they sent the chemicals to Mexico, and had the Mexicans manufacture fentanyl and bring it across the southwest border. And so we've got a we've got a huge problem with the, with migrant population coming across the southwest border. And the cartels are taking advantage of that. They're taking advantage of the migrants, number one, by charging them an exorbitant price to get across the border. And they're taking advantage of the American public by giving these people, these, these people that would do anything to get into America. Here, we'll cut your price by five thousand dollars, carry a bag of these pills across. And we're seizing millions of these pills daily down there. And it's, it's spreading all over America. All right. So if we are going to get serious and we have the Democrats giving, you know, this amount of money and Republicans giving equal amount, what does it look like then? If somebody in leadership were serious about this, what does that actually look like? There has to there has to be a cohesive conversation, a bipartisan conversation that involves law enforcement, the treatment industry and politicians. This is this is what this is what this is what we're going to do. That's why the Office of Narcotics Control Board uh, or ONDCP was started. The president's White House Drug Policy Office was started years ago. Is they were going to they were going to coalesce these people in law enforcement, treatment, and all these multidisciplinary po folks together, and we're going to come up with a cohesive policy on how to do that. We're never going to arrest ourselves out of this. We, we've got not got enough law enforcement officers in America to arrest everybody that's doing this. But what we got to do is cut the head off the snake. And we've got to have our State Department willing to go down to Mexico, to Colombia, to China and say, look, if you continue to do this. When I was in charge of international intelligence, we knew where the drugs were coming from. We could tell you the exact department, the, the states in Colombia are called departments. We could tell you the ex exact department that cocaine was coming from. And until we get the political will to, 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 to basically tell these people, if you want most favorable trade status with us, stop this nonsense. And this is the reciprocal agreement with that. We saw that with, with Chinese fentanyl uh, back in the last administration. Of course, they shifted it to Mexico. And then you go down and threaten the Mexicans. But the problem in Mexico is the cartels are more powerful than the government. Right. So, so you've got to problem. put the burden back on these countries where it's well, being exactly, shipped out of. Exactly. Instead the, the, of the vast majority of illicit drugs that are used in America today are manufactured from foreign sources. Now, having said that, 
with these new novel psychoactives, we're seeing more and more laboratories setting up domestically. And so DEA is having to get retrained on how to deal with the synthetic stuff, these novel psychoactives. There's 1,150 novel psychoactive drugs uh, in the world. Uh, DEA has seen about 700 of those seized uh, in the United States in the last year. So, so when COVID, when COVID wow. hit and fentanyl couldn't get here and we couldn't get heroin here, uh, we saw this novel psychoactive and the users love it. We, yeah. But we, to take it one step further, we talk about geopolitical. Uh, when, when we were in Afghanistan, we, the American government was there, there, was, there were 75 DEA agents stationed in Afghanistan, which was one of the leading producers of Southwest Asian heroin. We're not there anymore. The Taliban has neither the will nor the ability to control the opium trafficking industry. And it's one of the one of the most profitable industries in, in Southwest Asia. So now what's popping up in America again? Boom. Southwest Asian heroin. Do you feel like coming out of retirement? Like, I feel like if we got you back, we could just we nip could this it. really quickly. There are, hey, there are plenty of eminently qualified <laughs> folks in Washington that are saying the same thing. We just got to have the political will to do it. Uh, there are folks inside DEA right now that are singing the same message that I'm singing right here. And, and you've got to have a, you've got to have folks. And, and, and early in my, early in my law enforcement career, I was induced by a doctor to do some drug talks like this. And he said, Rick, you're going to talk to two types of people. You're going to talk to the people that haven't been affected by drug abuse and they don't care. And you're going to talk to the people that have been affected by it and they want to kill somebody. Mm. So we've got to we've got to narrow that gap. We've got to have the people that haven't been affected listen to the folks that have been affected. And I know you had somebody interviewed today that was that their family has been the victim of, of drug abuse. And so we've got to have those people telling how gut wrenching it is. And then we've got to have people that haven't been affected. I mean, we pray that our kids are never affected by it. But we've got to have some we've got to have those people we got to have them marry together and, and give a unified pro approach. And then we've got to have people with a political will internationally and nationally to talk to America, you know, and we got to have state legislatures. This legalization of marijuana thing is, is out of control. And, mm -hmm. and, and what we're talking about here, we're not talking about recreational drugs. We're not talking about this. We're talking about tax money. That's all we're talking about. Right. Uh, yep. This state wants more money. Let's legalize that. Well, what are we going to legalize next? Yeah, that was, um, I, I know our time is running out. I have one question and then okay. I'm sure Amy Beth has, it's like you and I always have one more question, <laughs> but that was, that's kind of where I was headed. Like from a state, um, Alabama, is there anything we can do? What can we do as a state? And I'm sure you deal with different medical associations and every state has their own issues and what you're talking about taxes. And, and if you look at the setup for the ma medical marijuana bill, that's all it is. It's, it's, it's there are certain people getting rich, you know, they're, uh, it's just disgusting money, money, what they're money. doing. But when I, what, what, when, when in my early law enforcement career, when I was buying marijuana, it was just like Dr. Harrison said, we saw two to 3% THC in marijuana with now the advancements in, in horticulture and Alabama's full of good farmers. Uh, and, and, and so they know how to raise that THC level up. So we're seeing 22%. We're seeing it. We're seeing, we're seeing something called dab, which you've never heard of. Yeah. And what you do is you put it under pressure and mix it with with some chemicals and you get a waxy substance that the THC content is up over 100 percent. Oh, my word. And so and so that, that's that's the problem. But to, to law the state of Alabama, and I speak all over the country, uh, the Medical Association for the state of Alabama has these prescription drug conferences and, and they and you've got some of the best trainers 
and some of the best physicians and nurses and medical assistants in the state. I mean, y'all should be proud of that uh, because because they don't come out of that conference. They come out of it trained and, and I stay in contact with these folks. And you got people like you got Dr. Harrison and a group of other doctors from Alabama that have taken the interest in that. And, and, and the medical board has taken the interest to try to modulate some of this stuff and to take aberrant behavior and identify it for what it is and take prescription drug abuse and identify it for what it is and, and, and focus on that with laser beam intensity. And that's what needs to be done nationwide. Mm. Boy, that's a good word. That's the most cohesive sentence statement understanding I've ever heard. I really, we really appreciate that so much. My mind is spinning. I feel like yeah. we need to have like a whole a lot. other podcast. Well, I um, think there's a, about yeah, this. There's, there's so a, much to learn. We really appreciate you coming on with us today. Well, I appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. And that has been this edition, the fentanyl edition of Alabama Unfiltered. Thank you for being with us today. We hope you learned as much as we did. Like it, share it, send it to your friends, send it to everybody you know. We've got to get the message out um, about drug abuse, about what it does, how it hurts people, how it hurts families, and this has got to stop. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.